history of First Denton. For more information on Overflow, please visit overflowdenton.org. How are we doing tonight? Yes, sir. Hey, uh, let me introduce myself if, if uh, I haven't met you yet. Uh, if this is your first time with us, my name is Austin Wadlow, and I'm the college pastor here at this church. I lead Overflow. And my man to my left, your right, is Coleman Maxwell. Y'all say what's up, Coleman. What up, what up, what up? Good to see y'all again. How many of y'all were here a couple weeks ago when Coleman uh, taught the rest of Oh, yeah, a lot of y'all. Okay, cool. Dang, that's good. Well, uh, yeah, so, so uh, we wanted to start off the series up here together and just kind of share a little bit of our heart and vision for why we're doing this series. Uh, segregated, the conversation that needs to happen. Uh, so we've been talking about this for like four or five months. Yeah. Why don't you, uh, how, did, how did it get going? Tell them how it got going. Yeah, uh, I guess it was this summer. We were hanging out, I can't remember what the occasion was. Am I going in and out? Uh, yeah, anyways, we're hanging out this summer here in Denton. Am I too close no, to you? No, don't worry about it, don't worry about it. Here, let me, good. let me get this mic. I don't know what the deal is. There we go. <laughs> All right. Ooh, that's, that, that makes you sound way sexier anyway. Yeah, so. good call, good call. I was just trying to be like you. So, uh, um, anyways, so we're hanging out. We're sitting in that parking lot over there. And uh, a couple things that just, just happened uh, just across America, you know, one being the, the Philando Castile shooting, uh, the Alton Sterling shooting, and, and just a few other things that, that happened. And, and so for both of us, man, we were reflecting on, just kind of where we're at, and then, then just thinking about just where we're at, even as the church, you know, capital C. And so we just began to talk about, well, what is our role in this? And so uh, I think that's how we got here. We've been praying. We've been bouncing ideas off for a long time and, t- you know, sharing our frustrations, uh, button heads with each other, all types of stuff like that. So uh, it's, been, it's been a long process, a long time coming as well. Well, we, we want to, um, uh, as we were talking about, we realized, hey, this is kind of turning into a sermon series we, we think we need to do. And uh, so anyways, we, you know, and I shared this last week, if y'all were here, uh, when I introduced the series, we, as we were talking about, we were thinking, man, if we do this, this is like choosing to, to walk through a minefield, you know, or run through a minefield. And as we were talking, we realized, you know, okay, that's risky to walk through a minefield. But then we, as we thought about it, we were like, you know what, I think it's a little riskier in this case not to, not to walk or run through this minefield, because um, this is an important conversation for us to have. So, uh, all that being said, you got anything else you want to say? Uh, man, I think uh, the, the most important thing for us throughout this series is, is for us to ask God for wisdom and for for us to ask God to just bust our heart wide open, day in and day out, uh, because he definitely wants to speak to us as, uh, as individuals, obviously, and then collectively. And so, uh, man, just be encouraged more than anything. So, Cool. Cool, cool. Well, hey, awesome. Let me pray for you, man, and uh, we'll get it going. Lord, thank you so much. Thank you for this night. Thank you for allowing us to be alive today. Um, man, it's a privilege to come kick it uh, with uh, all these students um, for the sake of just getting to know you more and uh, and what our role is as Christians, Father God. And so, God, I stand in the gap right now for my bro, Austin, and I ask that you would just... Uh, hide him behind your cross, and that you would speak, and uh, that you would make your name known to all of us tonight. God, we ask that you would just bust down many barriers that are in our hearts, and and even barriers that we aren't even aware of, Father. So, thank you uh, for what you're going to do uh, tonight, and uh, we love you. In the name we pray. Amen. Amen. 
Hey, will you move that clock a little further over so I can see it? I want to make sure we stay on time tonight. I got a lot to cover. Y'all ready to do this? Okay. Hey, before we jump in really into the content of this series, I want to start tonight by kind of pointing a few things out. Like, I don't know if you're aware of this. Denton, Texas, demographically, uh, is about 58% uh, white, 24% Hispanic, 10% uh, black, 7% it's categorized Asian slash other. Um, you and, sorry, that's uh, just how it is. Uh, UNT demographics, uh, 48% white at UNT, 48 to 50%, depending on which statistics you look at. Uh, then 21% Hispanic, 12% black. Uh, TWU demographics are 41% white, uh, 24% Hispanic, 20% black, 8% Asian. Now, here's why I share this. In December 2010, uh, I got in October 2010 and uh, started taking our leadership through just praying, all right, you know, Lord, what, what, what needs to be at the, the, the core, the heart of our ministry? What are some things that we need to really commit to praying for? And uh, we really kind of landed on four prayers. One of those four prayers was we, we began praying that the demographics of our ministry would reflect the demographics of the, of the population of college students that, we're, uh, that are on our campuses here in Denton. And uh, the heart behind that prayer is essentially this, like knowing that God's mission is to reach all nations. If we're not doing that right here in our own community, then we're not engaging in God's mission. You understand what I'm saying? Martin Luther King Jr., he said, famously said, he said the 11, a hour, the 11 a.m. hour on Sundays is ironically the most segregated hour of the week. And, and it's crazy because it's, it's true. I mean, even today, that's, that's true. Um, crazy statistic, the percentage of Christian congregations that are considered racially mixed, and let me define racially mixed. According to this stat, they're saying racially mixed means um, uh, the largest racial group in that congregation is no more than 80% of that whole congregation. So, so the number of, or the percentage of Christian congregations in America that are considered racially mixed is only five and a half percent. That's crazy. Um, now that being said, here's why we're starting with this. Uh, we, Overflow is just a ministry within the church or within this church. Um, and I really want to start off just by encouraging you because overflow fits into that five and a half percent in regards to uh, being racially mixed. Um, we still have a lot of room to grow if we're going to look like our campuses. Um, and, and we haven't like officially done this, you know, survey or anything. It might be interesting to do that at some point. But, um, you know, our estimation is we're somewhere between 65 to 70. Like our largest racial group in here is, is 65 to 70 percent of, of the population that's here on Tuesday night. And so that's a testimony to the gospel at work in, in your lives and in our lives. And I just want to encourage you with that as we step into this series. Now, that being said, I want us to consider what the past few years have looked like in our surrounding context. Uh, racial tensions have, have, have really heated up uh, because increased attention brought to uh, police shootings of African-American males. Uh, some of the most widely and more recent covered examples are, uh, like Coleman mentioned, Alton Sterling in Baton Rouge, Philando Castile in Minnesota, uh, Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. Uh, racial tensions have, have heated up after retaliatory shootings of, of police officers, like the five officers that were killed in Dallas, the nine that were wounded by uh, Michael Xavier Johnson, who supposedly said that he did that in, in kind of retaliation. The six officers that were shot in Baton Rouge, three killed, three wounded um, in, in retaliation for the Alden Sterling shooting. Racial tensions have, have heated up as the Black Lives Matter movement has grown, and everybody, and I feel like everybody and their mom has a Facebook opinion about it, uh, you know, saying things like, well, don't all lives matter, or blue lives matter too, or white lives matter, or whatever. Um, you know, look at just the last week. Uh, protests. Have, have broken out all over our country, even on uh, our, our campuses, as a result of Donald Trump being elected president. Um, in a large part, uh, these protests are fueled by racially charged comments that were made 
uh, during the campaign. Now, because this is happening in our culture, and because we strongly believe that in order to truly be engaged in God's mission, then our, uh, the diversity of our ministry needs to reflect the diversity of the population we're trying to minister to, we have to talk about this stuff. And it even goes deeper than that, really. Our country is filled with a history of massive racially charged uh, tension and divisions, going back to uh, the European settlers and their interactions with the Native Americans, and slavery, and the Black Codes, and, and Jim Crow laws, and civil rights movement, and so on. But you look at history, unfortunately, in recent history, the church in so many case, cases has taken a, a seat on the outskirts of this conversation when it needs to be at the center of it, driving it and guiding it. Uh, We've gone from being a a group of people, historically speaking, who knew that our role was to disrupt culture, to becoming a group of people seemingly terrified uh, of doing anything like that. I mean, mean, look back. I mean, just look at Jesus' ministry. His his message and his methods was completely countercultural. Albert Tate, he's a pastor in California, he said this, What a weak message the gospel would have been if Jesus had played by all the rules, kept within all the cultural bounds, and avoided seeming inappropriate at every turn. It would hardly be a story worth telling, but he broke boundaries left and right. You look at Jesus' ministry, and he was disrupting culture all the time. You look at the early church. I mean, their message and their methods were totally counterculture. The leaders of the Roman Empire, as a result, wanted to exterminate the early church. You look at Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King, but Martin Luther, like years ago in Europe, in Germany actually, when he took his 95 theses, 95 revolution-invoking ideas and thoughts uh, based off of God's word, and nailed them to a door of a church in Germany. Sparked the Protestant Reformation. I mean, that's disrupting culture. And there's a lot of examples throughout church history. As I've shared um, my desire to do this series with, with different people, some, some, some people have cautioned me saying, Something to the effect of, you know, Austin, uh, you know, I want to caution you. you. You may be opening a can that you don't want to open. And, and as I've thought about that statement, here's the reality. The can's already open. Uh, it, it has been opened. The question is, are we as the church going to avoid it uh, and let secular, non-Holy Spirit-led society determine what happens with its contents? Or are we going to jump in and be the solution? And as I've thought further about it, I've kind of come to this idea of, you know, there's band-aids and there's cures. You know, band-aids uh, and cures are very different from each other. Band-aids cover up, cures heal. You understand what I'm saying? Like, picture that. You know, band-aids, they cover up, cures heal. Band-aids, they fall off over time. Or you jump in the shower or you work out and sweat, they fall off. Cures don't do that. They're not temporary. They're permanent. They heal. They are like an actual, uh, they are an actual solution. Society continues to bring band-aids to the table of this conversation. In fact, that's really the only thing society is capable of bringing to the table. Uh, society's solutions and ideas uh, to fix this problem are just band-aids. They just cover it up for a while until the band-aid falls off again. And let me give you some historical examples of this. So slavery as an institution ended, uh, at the, uh, ended with the Civil War. But once slavery as an institution ended, it left people in our country asking this question, okay, well, what do we do with all these freed slaves? And there were a bunch of different ideas. There were a few different ideas. Uh, One idea was, okay, deport the freed slaves. Send them uh, back to where they came from. Uh, And and then some were like, well, you know, what if we leave them here? What do do we do with that? The result was 
You end up having four million former slaves, now four million people without land, uh, with few economic resources, uh, without much formal education, without even, in a lot of cases, even having cooking utensils, and surrounded by hostile people who wanted to prove that this new era of, of no longer institutionalized slavery uh, was a mistake. Um, and, and after that happened, uh, then our country in 1865 to 1877, a little history lesson here, uh, and I'm not a history expert, but this is some big stuff that happened in our history I feel like we need to know about. After, after slavery was ended at the end of the Civil War, 1865 started what's called the Reconstruction Period in our country. Uh, so the Reconstruction Period was essentially this period that, um, that, uh, that the country tried to you know, essentially assimilate these freed slaves into, into society. So essentially because the law had changed, people submitted to the law. And, and suddenly, hundreds, after hundreds of years of, of whites having total control, you started seeing things like black, black people and white people going to school together. And, and black people uh, were getting jobs. And, and former slaves were starting to hold office, like in government. In fact, there's, there's record of former slaves being in the U.S. Senate. Former slaves being the lieutenant governor of their, of their state. Former slaves being, uh, in fact, there's one, uh, one example of a former slave being the, the, the secretary of state in Florida. So, I mean, at this point, you look at history and it's like things are looking good, right? But, but again, you got to remember, band-aids fall off over time. So, so now enters the era of the black codes and, and Jim Crow law. So, so what happened was white people began to feel uneasy with former slaves being on an equal playing field. Economically, they felt threatened because, because blacks were taking jobs that otherwise would have been white people's jobs. So this led to the formation of what's called the Black Codes. These were instituted in the South during the Reconstruction period as a way to essentially keep control over the former slave population. Um, eventually, Jim Crow laws were formed. These laws were designed to separate uh, blacks from whites and subjugate blacks in social economic life. Um, this is essentially when those laws of, you know, having a white, you know, you'd see a sign, you know, white fountain, colored fountain, white restaurant, colored restaurant, white, you know, bathroom, colored bathroom. That's essentially what the Jim Crow laws um, were. Essentially, Jim Crow laws were created to, to keep the black population down and in check. And most of this was happening in the South. So around World War I, so we're now in like 1914 to 1918, African Americans began leaving the rural South and starting to migrate to northern cities and southern cities. And this was really the first time that white uh, northerners first started encountering African Americans in large numbers. This led to the birth of uh, the urban ghetto. The urban ghetto was essentially the white northerners' way of, of protecting their jobs and protecting their neighborhoods. They would isolate, uh, isolate these former slaves to certain areas of the city. So during this time, here's what began to happen. Racial violence began to increase. Uh, crazy stat. Between 1917 and 1920, uh, one black home in Chicago was bombed on average every 20 days. Uh, there were urban riots, uh, whites attacking blacks, vice versa. KKK resurged in the South. Uh, and some, there, there's some cases on record of black servicemen coming home from World War I, still in uniform, being lynched. So up until some of this more violent stuff started happening... Uh, white people didn't really see a race problem. Kind of out of sight, out of mind. So then the Civil Rights Movement happens in the 1960s, and that ended the Jim Crow segregation laws. But again, I want to argue that that's just another Band-Aid, or that was just another Band-Aid. And I just wonder if the past few years of increased racial tension and, and violence and rhetoric is all signs that that 
Uh, that Band-Aid that was slapped on in the 1960s, or whatever, whatever the most recent Band-Aid has been, I wonder if the, most, uh, the, the stuff that's happening in our, in, our, in our current culture now is just signs of that Band-Aid falling off again. So all that being said, here's the big question. When you look at history, when you read it, you've got to ask, where's the church been in all this? And when I say the church, and Coleman alluded to this earlier, what we mean is the capital C church, like the unified church, not First Baptist Church, but like the church, big American-scale church. And unfortunately, the church has taken um, three different postures when it comes to racial divisions. Posture number one is uh, fighting. They've, they've, some have fought for racial unity and racial equality. Posture number two is some have fought for racial divisions and racial segregation. And then posture number three is simply some have passively and silently sat off to the side. In most recent history, I think the church has primarily taken the posture of being passively silent on the issue. Which is really dangerous to society because we as the church, we're the only ones that have the cure. We're the only ones that have the cure because we're ultimately the only ones who have the tools required to perform the necessary surgery on society. And there's two tools that we have that I think are necessary. One is the tool of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21 says, Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And listen again to that. He says, Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. The power at work within us is referring to the Holy Spirit. And only the Holy Spirit has the power to break through the barriers that stand in the way of racial unity. It's only the Holy Spirit that has the power to make the necessary heart changes. So the first tool that we have that nobody else has is the, is the tool of the Holy Spirit. The second is the tool of <clears throat> agape love. So you, you look, there's, there's really four types of love. In, in Greek specifically, they had four different words for love. There's eros. Everybody say eros. Eros, then there was storge. Everybody say storge. storge. Then there was phileo. Everybody say phileo. Okay. And then there was agape. Everybody say agape. Okay. So eros was romantic love. That's where we get the word erotic. Uh, then there's storge. Storge is love for like family, family love. Then there's phileo. It's like brotherly or, or, uh, or friend love, like Philadelphia. That's phileo is part of that word. And then there's agape. Agape is unique. Essentially, the gospel is rooted in agape love. Agape love is love that's completely dependent on the giver of that love and has nothing to do with the recipient of that love. It's divine love. It's gospel love. And what the Bible teaches us is that the world cannot know this love apart from knowing Jesus. 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know agape love, that he laid down his life for us. Jesus died for us not because we were lovely or lovable or not because we, he felt like if he died for us and could get us on his team that we could you know, bring something to his campaign. Like Jesus died for us purely because he loves us. He chose to die for us. He chose to love us. That's agape love. Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrates his agape love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
So even in the midst of our sin and rebellion against Jesus, in his agape love, he came and died for us. So the agape love doesn't exist without the presence of Jesus, which goes back to Ephesians 3.20, which says, again, that him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. It is only because of the immeasurable work that God's doing and is able to do in and through our lives that any cure in society can be found. I want to read really quickly before we get into our main text. Uh, I told y'all, I think last week, I've been studying through Isaiah in my personal time. And a few weeks ago, I came, I came to Isaiah chapter 11. Flip there really quick. Isaiah chapter 11. I want you to see this. It's right in the middle of your Bible. So Isaiah chapter 11, uh, I'll give you the context. The first five verses, it's essentially prophesying the coming of Jesus. It's describing Jesus. So then you get to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6, and after it's described Jesus and the fact that Jesus would eventually come and restore the earth, reconcile the earth, it says some crazy stuff. It says, Isaiah 11, verse 6, it says, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. Now hear that. It says the wolf will dwell with the lamb. Think about that, okay? And then the leopard, what does it say? The leopard will lie down with the young goat. I have, I have trouble picturing that. Do you have trouble picturing that? I'm trying to picture a leopard and a goat, like, snuggling together, you know? <laughs> spooning. I think I know who the big spoon is in this case, you know? The leopard's going to be the bigger spoon. Anyways. <laughs> the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaning child shall put his hand on the adder's den. Essentially, the picture that's described is, is two things that don't mix. You know, two things that don't naturally come together. You know, a lion and a cow? Come on. I've seen the Discovery Channel. I know what happens. <laughs> a leopard and a cute little goat. A baby and a cobra. I mean, that's just not natural for those two to come together and be in peace. But look at what it says next. Verse 9. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. In other words, violence will come to an end. For, and the word for is important. It's, it's, it's like saying because. Like, this is going to happen because this is going to happen. So, so all this peace and lack of violence and people and groups coming together that don't normally mix together, they're going to come together because of what we're about to read. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Ultimately, what is going to bring this peace is when Christ uh, and the knowledge of Christ and the message of Christ, Christ spreads throughout the entire world. I mean, picture like it says here, it says, uh, <clears throat> the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I mean, you ever been to the ocean? Who in here has not been to the ocean before? Willing to fess up. So <laughs> one girl goes like that when nobody else raised their hand. Uh, she's right over there if y'all want to look at her. I'm just, <laughs> sorry for putting you on the spot. Uh, if you've been to the ocean... I mean, you know how massive it is. It's huge. If you've flown over the ocean, it feels like you're never going to be done flying over the ocean. And, it, and as Christ's message spreads and fills the earth like that, that's when we're going to see this, this unity and this peace. So, all that being said, how do we as the church even begin to practically use these tools to engage society on this issue? That's what this series is about. Segregated the conversation that needs to be had. How do we as the church engage society on these issues 
Practically speaking, um, the next three weeks we're having this conversation, and specifically the next three weeks we're going to use the book of James uh, to guide us in our study. So tonight we're going to start off in James chapter 1. If you want to turn there, that's towards the end of your Bible. James chapter 1, get there quick. I'll give you a second. Come on, I want to hear some pages turning. Are y'all with me so far tonight? Coleman, am I doing all right tonight? Okay. Not putting anybody to sleep over there, am I? Leslie, still awake? You better be. We're going to talk about that when we get home. I'm just kidding, baby. Are y'all ready? If you got it, say got it. James 1, verse 5. Says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let, let him ask God who gives generously to all without finding reproach, and it will be given to him. We desperately need wisdom. I mean, when you look at the conversation that we're having tonight in the next couple weeks of overflow, there are so many layers to this issue. There's historical layers, historical layers that honestly, I don't know that it'll matter how much you and I study history in our lifetime, we may not ever really understand the impact of history on what's happening now or the impact on history and and how it's not impacting now or the history and how it's not impacting now. So there's historical layers. There's personal, emotional layers. Um, So I I love Coleman. Coleman loves me, right? Yeah. We tell each other that on the regular. And we mean it. You mean it, don't you? Okay. Just making sure. So, you know, we said this at the beginning. We've been having a lot of serious and really candid conversations about race in the, in the current events happening right now over the past four or five months. We've, we've been having a lot of conversations over the past four or five months. And, and uh, you know, we, we, we want to be honest with you. He kind of already, you know, alluded to this. But there's been a couple times that we've both, you know, hung up the phone or, or left the conversation really frustrated. Um, in fact, there was one time uh, Leslie and I were in Colorado visiting my family. You remember this. He's already laughing. I don't remember who shot the first text message. It was probably me. But uh, he's like, yeah, it's you. <laughs> so I, we started a text message conversation, which is never a good idea on conversations like this. But uh, we started talking over text, and it, it quickly escalated. I mean, honestly, into a pretty heated text conversation. We went back and forth. You know, they were getting longer and longer texts. You know, you're like having to scroll through, you know, like this. And, uh, and uh, it got heated pretty quick. And, you know, we were, so anyways, finally, I, we had to call each other, you know, and talk about it over the phone and, and uh, actually, you know, make sure the tone of our text was coming across and make sure we understand each other better. But my point is this. There's a lot of personal emotional layers to this issue. There's a lot of perspective layers to this issue. I mean, there, there's things that Coleman in, in the past four or five months as, as we've been talking to has really wanted me to see and that I've needed to see. Uh, there's things that I've wanted Coleman to see, that he's needed to see. Um, so we desperately need wisdom to help us navigate these waters. We need wisdom as we search for solutions and try to make change. Again, there's a lot of layers to this. There's not just one fix. Now, let me backtrack on that statement and say this. There is one fix, and that's Jesus Christ. But when you, when you, when you look at, okay, how do we practically apply the gospel, that's a, that's a loaded question here because it's not just an emotional layer that we're dealing with. I mean, there's, there's, uh, there's historical layers, there's economic layers, there's generational layers, there's cultural layers. And so it's, it's a, it's a, we need wisdom as we search for solutions and try to make change. So practically, practically speaking, how do we do this? Again, read James chapter 1, verse 5. He says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, 
who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given uh, to him. Practically speaking, we ask God for wisdom. Listen, these days call for wisdom that only God can give. Our wisdom is very limited when you compare it to God's wisdom. Our our wisdom is based purely on uh, our limited past experiences and our present perceptions. But God's wisdom is based on his perfect knowledge of the past, the present, and even events that haven't happened yet in the future. I mean, that's, that, that last thing, him knowing what's going to happen in the future and knowing how to interpret what's going to happen in the future, that's what sets his wisdom infinitely apart from our wisdom. I mean, quite possibly more than anything else, and, and Coleman already said this, we need wisdom. We need to beg God to give us perspective. We need to beg God to give us his eyes so that we can see these events the way that he sees them. We need to beg God to give us his eyes so that it's through the lens of his eyes that we interpret these events. Not through the lens of the media. Not through the the eyes of our upbringings and past experiences. Not through the eyes of what we see on Facebook and Twitter, but through through the truth-filled and grace-filled eyes of Jesus. So practically speaking, how do we do this? First is we get on our knees and ask God for wisdom. So that's the first thing I'm going to challenge us to do. Get on our knees and ask God for wisdom. All right, James chapter 1, verse 19. James says, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Let me read that again. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Repeat after me. Let every person be quick to hear. Slow to speak. Slow to anger. Let me tell you this. I think we need these words today more than ever. White, black, brown, it doesn't matter the color of your skin. If we are all quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger, so many of these problems would go away. We need perspective, and the way that you gain perspective is is by listening. Listen with your ears, listen with your eyes. Let me give you an illustration that I hope will will be helpful. Um, if, If you're blind, how can you know what you're not able to see? Think about that. Like if you've been, if you were born blind, how can you know what you're not able to see? Like there's some things through your other senses that you're going to know exist, but your perception of the world, even think about this. If you're born blind, you may think you know what you look like, but your perception of what you look like might not actually even be what you look like. I mean, if you're blind from birth, there's going to be some things in existence that you don't even know exist, right? Because you've never seen them before. There's going to be things based off of your other senses that you're going to think look a certain way, but they actually don't look like that if you're blind from birth. So um, back in college, for three years, I, I was part of a ministry called Elder Serve. So every, like twice a week, I'd go to this uh, uh, retirement community or this, you know, place where you know, old, older people would live. And uh, I don't know why I said it like that. You get the gist. Uh, anyways... Um, Twice a week, I'd go there and hang out with this one dude named William Bunn. And he went by Bubba. Uh, he passed away a few years ago. He was a cool dude. He was 6'8", uh, 400 pounds, Arkansas, redneck as they get. Like, I had to basically learn to speak another language to understand this guy. Uh, I mean, real thick old Arkansas accent, talk like that, you know. Uh, big old dude. Anyways, he was blind. And uh, 
we, uh, we start hanging out a lot and uh, just spending time with him because, I mean, really, you know, most of these people, they are essentially like isolated there uh, at, the, it, it, you know, at a living center like that. So we, we would spend a couple hours together twice a week and eventually got to a point where our relationship grew and, and I started taking him places with me. And so I would take him to like basketball games and baseball games, take him to church, things like that. Uh, it was fun taking him to basketball games and stuff because we'd be sitting there, stuff would be happening, and, uh, and I would just ask him, Bubba, what do you think's going on right now? And, uh, you know, a lot of times he would be like pretty much right on. Like he knew what was going on. Uh, but I loved it too because I, growing up, I, I kind of wanted to be a sports commentator. So I'd sit there and, you know, be commentating on the game, be like, oh my gosh, and so and so takes the ball, he dribbles, shoots, scores, you know. Uh, sometimes I'd mess with him though, be like, oh my gosh, Bubba, this guy just dunked on this dude and then his pants fell off. Now he's running around naked and there's like seven people trying to tackle him. And he'd be like, oh, <laughs> that's not happening, you know. Uh, but it's crazy. I mean, honestly, it's crazy the things that he was aware of. Like we, uh, we, um, we went to this baseball game one time. And, uh, sorry, Leslie, in advance. Uh, so we were sitting at this, uh, we were sitting on the front row of this game, and uh, these, uh, these two girls came walking by, and, uh, you know, I was in college and uh, hadn't met Leslie yet, and so, <laughs> so, I mean, they were really pretty girls, and so they walked by, and I mean, naturally, you know, I looked at them as they walked by, nothing inappropriate, just like, hey, pretty girls, cool. And uh, so I, as I walked by, I guess my eyes kind of followed them, and uh, Bubba's sitting right next to me, and he goes, uh-huh. And I was like, I was like, what do you mean, uh-huh? And he goes, I see you looking at those girls. And I'm like, no, I'm pretty sure you don't see me looking at those girls. Uh, it's like, how did you know, man? Like, it was crazy. Um, but, uh, you know, when I first started taking him places, like, I had I'd never led a, a, a blind man before. And, uh, you know, also this dude's 6'8", 400 pounds, big old dude. And uh, so it was a learning curve for me to learn to, to lead him. Uh, first time walking out of the living center he lived in, uh, they had these double doors. And those double doors that had one of those middle bars, you know, that come down the middle. And uh, I know, yeah. What was I thinking? So we walked through, and I just didn't even think to say anything to him about, you know, I, I would hold his hand or he'd hold my arm, so he'd be walking next to me. So, of course, I walked through this way, and uh, he hits the bar. And, and I was like, ah, oh, shoot, I'm sorry, Bob. I didn't even think to tell you about that. And, uh, and, but I learned as time went on, um, you know, how to lead him. First time we came up to, you know, just it was like two steps, you know, going down in the parking lot. I didn't even think to tell him it's two steps, so we fell. And, uh, but then I, I learned, and I, you know, I'm not saying this, you know, just totally, you know, make fun of my stupidness, but um, yeah, so I mean, it got to a point where I, I learned, you know, to tell him what was coming. And, and so we were at a basketball game one time, and we had already gone up these steps, and I remember we were leaving the game, and we had to go down the steps. It was probably about 10 steps. And, and so we get to those steps, and I said, all right, Bubba, we're coming up on these on these stairs that we have to go down. And he goes, oh, yeah, I remember, I remember. And uh, so he assured me that he remembered the steps. And so I'm thinking, cool, he knows where the steps are. So we lead him down, and we fall down the steps in front of a lot of people, which was great. But um, the, 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 point is, the, the point that I'm making in, in that is blindness is dangerous because even if someone tells you it's there, it's still hard to really know it until you experience it. Does that make sense? Like, like, even if someone tells you it's there, it's hard to really know it and understand it until you experience it. So here's why I share that story. The first time I realized and observed and experienced unique treatment based on race was in high school um, while, playing, while playing basketball on an all-black team. It wasn't all-black because I was on it. Uh, uh, I was the only white guy on this team. A uh, little backstory here. So I was playing in, in what was called, I don't know if this still goes on, it's called the Carter League. 
um, is Lee at Carter High School. Anybody here go to Carter, Carter High School? Anybody? South Dallas? Okay, anyways. Uh, cool. So anyways, uh, played in Carter League, and uh, so we're, we're, uh, we're playing, the team I was on, we were playing, and uh, we're playing this other team. Long story short, our two teams got into this really big fight in the middle of the game. That's a whole other story. But afterwards, our two coaches came together and were like, hey, like, our, both of our teams are really good. If we could get along with each other, we should combine our teams and like, travel and do some traveling tournaments together, go to some of these scouting tournaments and stuff together. So we decided to do that. They took some of their guys, some of our guys. I was one of the guys from my team they took. And so we started traveling around the state of Texas doing uh, different tournaments. And so uh, one of the first tournaments, tournaments we went to was down at Texas A&M. I remember driving down there. We were in two vans. This was right when, uh, y'all probably never heard of this dude, DJ Screw. Y'all ever heard of DJ Screw? Right when he was getting popular. Oh, my gosh. The entire stinking way down. We're listening to DJ Screw. Go look it up on YouTube. Um, Anyway, so we're, we're driving down, listening to DJ Screw. We get down there, we play a game, we go stay in our uh, hotel. And uh, that night, all of us went to one of our rooms, and we're playing video games. And, I mean, like high school dudes, being, like, crazy loud and stuff. I was probably the one starting it, whatever. But uh, one, of the, one of the coaches from one of the colleges that was there scouting, you know, this tournament comes banging on our door. And uh, so we open up the door, and, and I'm still, I'm, like, in the back of the room. I was over playing, getting my butt whooped at, you know, 2K something, whatever it was at that point. And... Uh, 2K is probably like 1990-something. Anyways, uh, so, I, uh, they, so they opened the door, and, and this, this, this coach from a major university was standing there, a white, a white coach. Um, he starts yelling at us, and he's like, dude, y'all need to keep it down. Y'all need to be quiet. Y'all keeping everybody up. And, uh, and so he kind of looks around the room, and he points at me, and he says, hey, you come out here. As soon as that happens, all the dudes on the team, again, I'm, I was the only white guy on the team, all the dudes on the team are like, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, pick the white guy out of the room and pull him out on the balcony. And, and uh, you know, as I said, I was thinking, yeah, why the heck do you pick me? You know, I'm thinking, I don't want to get in trouble. Uh, so I, but I go out there and, and he says to me, he says, uh, hey, you need, to, you need to get your boys quiet. And uh, in that moment, it was like this light bulb moment for me. Like, this isn't right. Like, why did, like, like, why did he pull me out? You know, like, why didn't he pull one of the other dudes out? Like, why did he pull me out? Some of the stuff that he said to me, that, like that for me was my fall down the stairs moment. You know what I'm saying? What I'm saying? Going back to the story of Bubba. Like, that was kind of, like, I'd been, I'd had experiences like this before, but the light bulb had never gone off. I'd never fallen down the stairs and really understand, understood what was happening. So, going back to James. James 1.19 says, My beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So, practically speaking, how do we do this? I want to give us three ways that we can practically do this. One is read outside of your normal reading zone. So, and some of y'all are like, well, I don't read, so just reading in general would, would be reading outside my normal reading zone. Uh, I feel you. But if, if you're reading, which if you're not reading, come on, you need to read. You know, leaders are readers, uh, so you're not a leader. Um, but uh, if you are reading, then you need to read outside of your normal reading zone. So like if all you read is white authors, then read somebody who's not white. If all you read is black authors, read somebody who's not black. If all you read is Asian authors, read somebody who's not Asian. Um, I'll give you a great book uh, uh, to read. Um, it's called um, Letters to a Birmingham Jail. Um, now, you've probably heard of Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail. Very, very famous and honestly incredible uh, convicting letter that, w- that he wrote um, when he was in, in jail in Birmingham. Uh, there's a book out called Letters to a Birmingham Jail. And uh, it's edited by Brian Loritz. He's a pastor in Memphis. Um, 
And there's about 10 dudes that have contributed to this book, guys that some of y'all recognize, Brian Loritz, Crawford Loritz, I don't know if y'all recognize them, Matt Chandler, John Piper, um, you know, I know y'all recognize those names probably, uh, John Perkins, anyways, incredible book, and really a lot of insight into some of the stuff that we're talking about now. Um, but read outside of your normal reading zone. Second practical way that we can do what James 1.19 is telling us is uh, don't rant on social media. Did y'all hear me? Like, just don't, don't do it. Uh, get to know the other side. I mean, if all you do is read your friend's Facebook rants that all agree with you, then your perspective is going to be really, really limited. And, and ranting on Facebook doesn't, doesn't, all that is is your opportunity to speak. There's no opportunity for really somebody to, I mean, unless in the comments and then it just gets out of hand, but there's really no listening opportunity for you. I would just challenge you in general. Don't speak unless there's also a listening opportunity back. If you're truly going to be quick to listen, slow to speak, I'm telling you, ranting on Facebook is not following what God's Word is telling you to do. So that's the second thing. Third thing is this, and it's a crazy, crazy idea. Y'all ready for this crazy idea? Okay. Get to know people who don't look like you. It's not really that crazy. But unfortunately in our culture, you look at the friend circles that are hanging out with each other, and it would seem crazy to suggest that. Get to know people who don't look like you. All right, we've got to move. James one twenty two says, But be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. I like the NIV translation. It says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. We need to act. Edmund Burke, he said this, The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. I preached this summer uh, at an event in Alabama. Alabama. It's been one of those days, y'all. I preached this summer at an event in Alabama. (laughs) Alabama sounds crazy. I want to go there sometime. Anyways, um, let me read Edmund Burke's quote again. It says, The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. So this summer I preached at at an event in Alabama. Uh, The same week that Alton Sterling... Philando Castile, and then the Dallas police shootings happened, or it was like the week before all that happened. So in Alabama, each night of the event, we met in the city's civic center. Um, and then the last night, so it was like a six-day six, six event, preached in the mornings, preached in the evenings. And uh, in the last night, they invited anybody in the city to come. And, and it was crazy. Like, the civic center was completely, I mean, it was already Pretty, pretty full the whole week, but it was completely packed out. 3,000 plus people packed out in the Civic Center. Uh, had overflow space. That was packed out. I'm, I'm pretty sure they were turning people away. Um, and the message that night that I preached was about how the reason that the world is in the dark place that it is is because we as followers of Christ have failed to embrace the call in our life to be the light of the world. Well, let me say that again. I want to make sure you heard that like I think the reason that the world is in the dark place that it is is because we as believers have failed to embrace the calling calling in our life to be the light of the world. I mean, when you think about it, that's really the only explanation for the darkness in our country. Like, how do we pack out civic centers and arenas? Like, some of y'all go into Passion in a few weeks. How do we pack out civic centers and arenas and rooms even like this? Big worship centers with people praising Jesus, people claiming to follow Jesus day in and day out, but seem to have less and less of an impact on culture. I really think there's only one answer to that. 
why that is. And that's as soon as we walk out of here, we go back and we hide in our homes, hide in our apartments, hide in our dorms, hide behind Netflix, hide behind the news, hide behind our fake lives on Facebook and social media. You need to understand, Jesus didn't say, be the light of your armchair. Jesus said, be the light of the world. And these days, more than ever, we need to be doers, not hearers only. We need to shine the light of Jesus in the darkness. Posting your opinions on Facebook does not cut it. Don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. So practically speaking, how do we do this? I think we've already gotten a little bit practical, but one pastor wrote, Our churches will never look differently if we allow our homes to remain unchanged. The transformation of our churches begins in our living rooms. Man, that's thick. Like, who's in your inner circle? Who are you inviting into your dorm, in your apartment, in your home? Some of y'all are like nobody because my place is a mess. <laughs> Man, clean it up. And then let me ask you, who are you inviting into your dorm, your apartment, your home? Who are you breaking bread with? Who are you having meals with? Who are you having below-the-surface conversations with? Stop being friends only with people who look just like you. And then lastly, James 1.27 says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. You know, I look at that and I hear, okay, to visit orphans and widows. That's not an extensive list. But I think the reason he lists those two is because he, he could go on and he's naming those who are out, outcasts in society or, or even probably better put marginalized in society. Those who are pushed to the edges of society. And he says, true religion, the God our Father um, sees as pure and faultless as this, to visit or to look after orphans and widows in their distress. When he says visit, it means Go to them. It doesn't mean stand at a distance and talk about them. It doesn't mean stand at a distance and post something about them or to them. It doesn't say stand at a distance and write them a check and walk away. Our response is supposed to be relational and hands-on. And here's the thing, kind of going off the grid here. And some, some I feel like think, well, you know, what, the things happening in our culture, it's not, my, it's not my fault or it's not my problem. Listen, if, if, that's, if that's you that's saying that, then regardless of maybe the arguments that you can make for that being true or not true or whatever, if that's you saying that's not my fault or that's not my problem, please understand what would have happened if that's what God said when he looked down at us. Like, what if he looked at us in our depravity and our sin and said, that's not my problem, that's not my fault? He never would have sent Jesus. And here's what's crazy about this is, okay, so we call ourselves followers of Christ. I know not everybody in here calls yourself that, and I'm glad that you're here learning. And hopefully through this, you're realizing that Jesus does care about this stuff that's happening in our current events, even when the church acts like he doesn't. But for those in this room who call yourselves followers of Jesus. You need to understand you're called to follow Jesus. And if you're following Jesus, you're going to 
be where Jesus is. If you're following Jesus, you're going to look more like Jesus. But standing at a distance and saying, well, that's not my problem, that does not at all look like Jesus because he left to the highest stinking place in all of existence, the right hand of God, traveled the transcendent gap, standing between us and him, lowered himself to the lowest place on all existence so that he could make our problem his problem and save us from it. Rip us out of our poverty and sin. Rip us out of our, our distance from God and reconcile us to him. So if you're going to be like Christ, then you have to embrace the ministry of Christ. And the ministry of Christ is to visit and look after the orphans and the widows. To visit and look after those who are marginalized. So my prayer as we dig into this series is that we would see that though racial reconciliation and racial unity and fighting for that is not, that in and of itself is not the gospel. But that is like guaranteed fruit of the gospel. So our country is divided, but I'm hopeful, and here's why. Like I said, there was a huge division that used to exist between all humanity and God. But God closed that gap with his son, Jesus Christ. Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Here's what's crazy. The same reconciling power that exists within Jesus is now the same reconciling power that exists within his church. So my challenge to you and my challenge to myself is ultimately, let's not stand on the outskirts of this conversation. Let's jump in and be right in the middle of it. Because we're the only ones with a cure. Let's not let another band-aid be slapped on it, only to fall off years later. Let's be part of the cure. Let me pray for us. Thank you for listening to the Overflow Podcast please feel free to download and share with friends. We ask that you do not alter any of the previous content in any way. For more information about Overflow, feel free to visit us online at overflowdenton.org.